The history that lies between the two rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates is the history of human civilization. The river's predictable flooding patterns allowed for groups such as the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Akkadians to thrive and flourish within the arid Middle East. The Greeks referred to it as Mesopotamia. The late-night talk show hosts have referred to it more often as Mess of Potamia during the past four decades. This cradle of civilization would go on to produce one of the most despicable dictators of the 21st century, a man whose harshness would have his people remembering the brutal Assyrians rather than the creators of the civilized world. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the first episode in a three-part series about the life and legacy of Iraq's most infamous dictator, Saddam Hussein. His Rise. Iraq was a part of the Turkish-led Ottoman Empire, a dynasty that rose to power as a result of their control over lucrative trade routes that connected Europe and Asia. They utilized that wealth to form a loyal slave army known as the Janissaries. This extremely dependable group of special forces made up the core of the first army that mastered the utilization of guns for warfare. They even went on to do the impossible conquering Constantinople. After toppling the Byzantine Empire, the Ottomans rose to prominence in the Middle East for 600 years. They would remain the dominant hegemonic power in the Middle East until they made the mistake of choosing the wrong side in World War I. Coming in on the German side, the Ottomans' poor decision-making in the Great War resulted in the collapse and subsequent breakup of their empire. Two-thirds of their military were destroyed during the war, and their sultan was overthrown, turning the Turks into another one of history's failed empires. Prior to the collapse of the Ottomans, Great Britain seized their land that resided between the two rivers. Just three months and two days into World War I, the Brits justified their invasion of Iraq as a move designed to protect their oil fields in Iran and to maintain open shipping lanes for resupply from their Indian colonies via the Persian Gulf. Iraq's location has historically been the justification for great empire invasions. Lawrence of Arabia, known to his fellow Brits as Thomas Edward Lawrence, led a nationalist revolt against the Turks paving the way for the general of the British forces to address the people of Baghdad in 1917, with words that would be repeated a few times throughout the next hundred years. Our armies do not come into your cities and lands as conquerors or enemies, he said, but as liberators. imperialism was one of the leading causes of World War I. American President Woodrow Wilson viciously attacked the concepts of colonialism in his 14 Points Address, 
and attempted to set the world on a better course by forming the League of Nations. The European world, however, wasn't quite ready to give up on the system that formed the basis of its wealth and power. Britain was granted a mandate to rule over the land it had seized in Iraq until 1920. They were given the mandate to prepare the territory for independence, a convenient way to positively justify their takeover. Similar mandates were granted for British Palestine and the French regarding Syria and Lebanon. A quick perusal of the history of each nation will reveal that this was just another failure for the no longer existent League of Nations. With the right to raise and spend revenues, appoint government officials, and the ability to make and enforce laws of their choosing, the European powers had merely disguised their colonial system. The locals were quick to diagnose the intention of their liberators. Within the first year of rule, an Islamic cleric issued a fatwa, or declaration of God's thoughts declaring the occupation of Iraq as anti-Islamic, and thus triggering a defensive jihad. Those are all terms that are thrown about in America's own war on terror, so let me meander for a moment on some of the differences that the Islamic faith has compared to the standard American Christian creed. Islam is largely decentralized. The easiest way to think about this is that they are the exact opposite of Catholicism in this regards. When Catholics have an internal disagreement regarding the faith, their argument rises up through the predetermined ranks. Bishops outrank priests, who are in turn outranked by cardinals. Their decisions and thoughts have checks and balances and can be appealed all the way up to the Pope himself who will then make a ruling or statement on the issue. Unless God himself contradicts the Pope, the interpretation of God's will is left to the Pope alone, and all of his flock on earth have to fall in line. There isn't a similar appeals court in Islam. Any qualified Islamic jurist or mufti is allowed to issue a fatwa which resembles a ruling plus a write-up on how the mufti came to that conclusion. Thus, there can simultaneously be a number of different and contradictory viewpoints regarding what Allah believes on earth. A jihad is a holy war, much like the Christian concept of crusade, but it is more nuanced. There are two types of jihads. An offensive jihad occurs when Islam is used to attack someone, perhaps in order to liberate an oppressed people. This type of holy war is purely optional for Muslims. A defensive jihad is only called when Islam is under threat or assault. This form of religious war is considered a religious obligation for all Muslims on the planet, but can be fulfilled in a myriad of ways, including through prayer, donations, or participation within the conflict itself. Afghanistan provides us an excellent example of the distinction between the two forms of jihad. A defensive, mandatory jihad was prompted by the Soviet Union's 1979 invasion of Afghanistan. The atheist history of the USSR led most to believe that the takeover would involve a stamping out of Islam within the republic, 
and all Muslims were called to defend the faith. Osama bin Laden, a wealthy young man from Saudi Arabia, was one of those who answered the call. First, funding camps, which he called Al-Qaeda, and then participating directly in the fighting during the latter portions of the war. Bin Laden took aid and resources from the West in order to fulfill the jihad against the Soviet Union. By no means did this make him their ally. Bin Laden himself justified taking American support by stating, quote, To counter these atheist Russians, the Saudis chose me as their representative in Afghanistan. I did not fight against the communist threat while forgetting the peril from the West, end quote. He finishes by stating for the record that we had to fight on all fronts against communist or Western oppression. In 2001, bin Laden made the case for another mandatory defensive jihad, but was unable to receive a fatwa for it. One cleric did, however, agree that the American empire had committed infractions against the religion of Islam. Bin Laden's September 11th attacks were thus an example of an optional offensive jihad, a moment where bin Laden utilized the religion of Islam to attack. His personal hopes were for an overreaction from the states. We did see a massive spike of hate crimes in the aftermath, but it was against turban-wearing Sikhs, showing how poor America's religious understanding is. There was no war against Islam called for by the West, just a war against terror. In the first instance of Afghan Jihad, the action was mandatory for all Muslims, meaning that during bin Laden's defense of Afghan sovereignty against the USSR, American Muslims would have been obligated to at minimum pray for an Islamic victory. In our second instance, however, the offensive jihad of 9-11, American Muslims were able to let their voices be heard, pointing out loudly that the attack was a non-Islamic barbaric act, and one that bin Laden deserved to die for. Let's get back to the subject at hand, though. The 1920 Fatwa Against British Colonization Uprisings began across the territory, united across ethnic and religious lines by a universal dislike for their colonial overseers. The Brits came down hard on the rebellions, and 6,000 locals were killed, along with 500 of their own troops from England and India. The Times of London seemed to have futuristic knowledge at their hands when they asked the question, how much longer are valuable lives to be sacrificed in the vain endeavor to impose upon the Arab population an elaborate and expensive administration which they never asked for and do not want? We still may not know the answer to that question, but we know that the Brits weren't willing to give up yet particularly not in 1926, when huge deposits of oil were discovered within the territory's borders. The British knew that they could no longer be the public face of rule in Iraq, but they weren't ready to hand over that control to the people of Iraq. Thus began a period of history where emphasis was placed first and foremost on how to best control the Iraqi population. They settled on a constitutional monarchy, with Faisal I becoming the first king. 
This wasn't a natural fit, however, considering that Faisal, the third son of the Grand Emir of Mecca, had never set foot within the lands of Mesopotamia. He was an outsider pan-picked by the British to rule over their land and make decisions which would benefit them first and foremost. The Smithsonian Magazine utilizes historian Janet Wallach to highlight the craziness of this decision. Their article begins by revealing the details of a letter home from the British officer in charge of Iraq. He reveals the truth that The Turks didn't govern, and we have made things much worse. We have underestimated the fact that this country is really an insulat mass of tribes which can't yet be reduced to any system. Their attempt with Faisal was then to put an Arab face on their rule. But the 35-year-old prince had never set foot in Iraq and spoke an Arabic dialect that was barely intelligible to many of his future subjects. He had no knowledge of the Iraqi tribes, no friendships with the sheikhs, no familiarity with the terrain, the marshes in the south, the mountains in the north, the grain fields, the river life, and he had no connection to its ancient past. This belief that the West could just install an Arab-looking puppet to control their newest fiefdom will be repeated throughout the next hundred years of Iraq's history. Faisal and his British cabinet utilized a classic divide-and-conquer approach that was endemic to British colonization. Believing that it was easier to control an empowered minority rather than police the behavior of the majority, King Faisal turned to his fellow Sunni citizens who made up the majority of those living within the capital city of Baghdad. Although a majority in this portion of Iraq, the Sunnis only made up a mere 20% of Iraq's total population. Shiites were the majority with 50%, while Iraqi Kurds made up 20%, and the rest of the population was comprised of Jews, Assyrians, and other small minority groups. Due to their proximity to the throne, Sunnis were empowered at the expense of 80% of the population of Iraq. Basil believed and pushed hard for pan-Arab nationalism, a political theory that attempts to look past the religious and ethnic differences inherent to the Middle East, and to instead imagine the Arab people as one people united behind a shared culture. For much of history, though, pan-Arab nationalism has failed to bear the fruit of peaceful coexistence. Rather, the philosophy has been utilized by tyrants who seek to add land to their own territory. Faisal was making progress towards his goal of uniting the people of Iraq, even if it was slow. Historian Edmund Garib believes that the history of Iraq would have been very different if Faisal had lived ten more years. After his death, the British were able to undermine the government and the monarchy by constantly putting pressure on them to serve Britain's interests, involving oil, foreign affairs in the Gulf region, and other issues. Iraq's monarchy didn't survive Faisal's grandson ending in 1958 with a military coup d'etat. The violence that followed the moment reflected a deep hatred for the British overlords, and it was marked by nationalist fervor, ethnic uprisings, tribal conflicts, palace treacheries, warfare, and deadly oppression.
1958 coup was the one that succeeded in achieving Iraqi independence. But it wasn't the first one attempted, nor is it the most important for our story. That distinction belongs to Rashid Ali's 1941 attempted takeover. Ali was the civilian front for a takeover attempt by four military colonels. He maintained a semblance of power in Baghdad for two months, before being forced to flee to Berlin in the midst of World War II. The British captured and executed the four colonels, but retaliatorial violence broke out in the pro-Britain Jewish quarter, resulting in the deaths of 179 men, women, and children. So how exactly does this factor into our story? Well, Saddam Hussein was born in 1937. He was four years old during Ali's two-month-long seizure of power, and although he likely didn't understand much of it, he was regularly told about the 1941 attempted coup. That's because he was largely raised by his uncle, a proud military officer whose career ended when the coup collapsed. This event formed one of Hussein's core memories, and tragically, it would have been one of his better childhood memories. Saddam Hussein had a tragic upbringing, one that appeared destined to create a deranged dictator. Gerald Post, the founder of the Center for the Analysis of Personality and Political Behavior at the CIA, tells us that, quote, of all the leaders I've profiled, Saddam's background is assuredly the most traumatic. His troubles can really be traced back to the womb. Historians are unable to pin down whether his father had died of cancer during his mother's second trimester of pregnancy, or if he had simply abandoned his family. His 12-year-old older brother would soon die of cancer. Saddam's mother was so distraught that she first attempted to abort him. Failing that, she attempted suicide. Upon his birth, Saddam was shunned by his mother for the first three years of his life. During this period of his life, he was raised by his militaristically inclined uncle. Upon her remarriage, Saddam was reunited with his birth mother, only to be subjected to horrific abuse by his stepfather. Hassan, the stepfather, reportedly beat the boy in order to wake him from his slumber, forced him to steal for the family, and may have encouraged him to commit his first murder. The name Saddam meant one who confronts, and the boy would live up to his moniker. He escaped Hassan the Liar at the age of eight, and returned to the care of his uncle, who had just been discharged from prison for his role in the attempted coup. Although he had managed to escape his abusers, the initial damage was done. Gerald Post points out that there are two paths that Saddam could have taken. Many with traumatic childhoods retreat inward, and become highly ineffective as adults due to the insecurity informed by their trauma. Still, some abused individuals travel an alternative path, one that is fueled by malignant narcissism. This was Saddam's path, and he who confronts would become, in Post's professional opinion, 
a judicious political calculator, and not the madman that he is commonly mistaken for. Malignant narcissism is a common trait among those whom history has designated as evil. Along with Saddam Hussein, one might find the likes of Adolf Hitler, Kim Jong-un, and Osama bin Laden as those affected by this condition. Post reveals to us that individuals with malignant narcissism are prone to extreme self-absorption, paranoia, no constraints on their conscience, and a willingness to use whatever means necessary to accomplish goals. They have little empathy for the pain and suffering of their own people, but also can't empathize with their enemies. Post refers to this as a critical vulnerability, as effective leaders have to be able to assume the minds of their adversaries. The uncle that raised him was a big believer in education, unlike his illiterate stepfather. By all accounts, Saddam was a decent student and enjoyed his educational experience. But Iraq was a difficult land. According to a semi-biographical work, Saddam was reportedly handed a pistol in order to stay safe on the streets during his teenage years in Tikrit. Perhaps because of his late start in education, he failed to pass the military examination after high school. This was devastating to a young man whose head had been filled with stories of militaristic glory by his uncle. Despite decades of pictures of Saddam wearing a military uniform, he had never actually earned the right to wear one. Slightly lost after failing entrance to the military, he found himself mixed up with an underground pro-revolution anti-communist pan-Arab Ba'ath party. The 20-year-old was likely introduced by his uncle, who was a political adherent to the party. The Ba'ath party was a mere 300 strong at this moment in history, and few could have foreseen its eventual successful takeover of the nation. At this point, we have nearly caught up to the first part of our story. The British-supported monarchy of Iraq will fall in 1958. Saddam had just joined the Ba'ath Party in 1957, and it wouldn't take him long to become a known commodity to the sitting royal government. At this point in his life, he takes on the role of a thug, much in the same way that Joseph Stalin served Vladimir Lenin in the early days of the Bolshevik Revolution. In fact, said Aubish, a historian who wrote Saddam Hussein, The Politics of Revenge, claims that Stalin was Saddam's personal hero. One only has to take a look at Saddam's preferred facial hair to see his desire to emulate the Soviet. His personal library was filled with hundreds of books about the Man of Steel. The Ba'ath Party were far from leftist communists, but Stalin's politics weren't what was so relatable to Hussein. Instead, one sees common roots between the two men. The Ba'ath Party gave Saddam his first shot at violent glory at the age of 24. The young man promptly blew it. 
His task was to assassinate Abdel Karim Qasim, the man who had seized power in the 1958 coup that had successfully ended the British-backed monarchy. Qasim was no friend to the Ba'ath Party's nationalistic pan-Arab political philosophies. Instead, he allied with an Iraqi communist group, which had wider regional geopolitical implications. Egyptian dictator Nasser, himself a huge proponent of pan-Arabism, likely encouraged the hit on Qasim. There is even speculation that the individuals involved received training in Syria, an allied nation of Nasser. The ambush was laid out for October 7, 1959. The car was to be stopped. One man would shoot those in the back seat at close range, while a group of individuals would light the car up from the front. Reports claim that the mission was botched when Saddam himself began firing prematurely. Qasim, the Iraqi leader, was hit in the arm and shoulder, and his chauffeur was killed in the attack. Believing that the deed was done, a false assumption, the young men retreated to their safe houses. The botched assassination attempt resulted in Saddam Hussein fleeing to Cairo, Egypt. During this self-imposed exile, he attended class for a law degree, which he would never finish. Those that knew him during this time period paint the picture of a bully and agitator. One landlord threw him out for fighting, and classmates recall him failing his courses because he spent all of his free time trying to plot an overthrow of the Iraqi government. Egyptian special forces kept tabs on him for fears that he might be simultaneously planning an Egyptian coup, although that makes little sense as he had great respect for Nasser, whose political philosophies were exceptionally similar to his own. Curiously, Logs show that Saddam spent an inordinate amount of time traveling to and from the American embassy in Cairo. Likely, this was all a part of what the CIA refers to as cultivating a future asset. But it was unlikely to be anything more considering Saddam was still at extremely low-level thug status. In the midst of the Cold War, however, Saddam appeared extremely attractive to American foreign policy experts. He was a staunch anti-communist, he wasn't particularly religious, and definitely wouldn't govern religiously. And based upon the detail that he had tried to assassinate him, he was no friend of Iraq's Qasim, who had gone on to nationalize the oil industry at the expense of American private investors. Saddam failed in his 1959 assassination attempt, but the Ba'ath Party succeeded in 1963 with a successful coup, show trial, and televised execution of Qasim. While there are heavy suspicions of CIA involvement, declassified documentation suggests that their planning for a takeover was merely in the development of stage when it happened. This rings true considering that the Ba'ath Party weren't able to hold on to power for long. The two most notable footnotes regarding their seizure of power was that they had massacred thousands of suspected communists and had allowed Saddam Hussein to return from his Egyptian exile. The Ba'ath Party quickly showed the world who they were. 
a thuggish group of individuals who were more than content to use violence as a means to get what they wanted. The Iraqi public found this out when they turned on their TVs only to be shown the bullet-riddled corpse of their former leader. To add to the insult, a Ba'ath Party official spat in the face of the dead man. Despite his flirtation with the study of law in Cairo, Saddam jumped right back into the role he had previously held with the party, only this time he was torturing prisoners inside of Iraq's royal palace. Disagreements with the Syrian side of the Pan-Arab Ba'ath Party, as well as who would hold the ultimate reins of power, caused a split within the party, and the military once again seized control of the palace. The Ba'ath Party had governed Baghdad for less than one year. Saddam and other predominant members of the party were imprisoned. Gerald Post, the man that profiled Saddam with malignant narcissism, also referred to him as a judicious political calculator. By this, he means to say that Saddam had a hyper-singular focus on issues. This characteristic served him well throughout his life. For instance, keenly aware about the dangers of coups, he would go on to set up a special intelligence unit in charge of studying every single coup that had happened in the 20th century. The intelligence gathered served him well more than once. The Guardian tells us about the summer of 1996, long after he had risen to power, when the British MI6 and the CIA were planning an operation to support senior army officers in a coup against Hussein. Logistical support was provided by the CIA, but their plans were sniffed out. Saddam arrested hundreds of officers suspected of plotting against him, arrested, tortured, and executed them. Upon finding CIA phones, the Iraqi intelligence officer called the CIA to calmly tell them, your men are dead, pack up and go home. During his two years in prison, Saddam used this gift of singular focus to diagnose what had gone wrong. His conclusion was that the Ba'ath Party had relied too much on what was proving to be an unreliable Iraqi military. He vowed that when they received another chance, that the party apparatus would have its own loyal security forces at their disposal. Saddam escaped from prison in 1966 and began to put his planning into motion. First, he began the process of establishing a loyalist military police force for the party. Secondly, he linked up with Michael Affleck, the founder of Ba'athist political thought. Affleck is a fascinating individual. Take, for instance, the fact that he was a Syrian Christian who believed that Islam's existence was proof of Arab genius. This is where the non-religious secular aspect of the Ba'ath Party comes in. This was also one of the reasons that the U.S. looked fondly towards Saddam at the dawn of his rule. Over disagreements regarding who should be in charge of pan-Arab nationalism, Egypt, Syria, or Iraq, the Ba'ath Party shattered and Affleck was shunned to Iraq to aid Saddam in the reformation of the party. From this time on, the organization would shun the concept of a greater united Arab state 
and instead focus just on Iraq. The takeover occurred in July of 1968. The front of the Ba'athist revolutionaries was Saddam's cousin, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar. Saddam was instrumental in the organization and consolidation of the new government. This included the purge of remaining government loyalists. To showcase that he was no longer just a thug, and now a member of prominence within the party, he personally led the former leader at gunpoint to the plane that escorted him out of Iraq and into exile in London. Historian Charles Tripp gives some credit to the dual force that was the cousins. He tells us that Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar was very much an old-style regimental officer. And Saddam Hussein was not an officer, was not in the army, but was an excellent street organizer. Which is the phrase most oftentimes used to mean someone who could organize the beating up of opponents, demonstrations, street violence, and who had the ear to the ground in ways that Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar couldn't. Al-Bakar became the fourth president in Iraq history, and Saddam became his right-hand man and deputy. It was clear to all who could see that Saddam was the rising power within the Iraqi government. First up on the two men's agenda was the combating of traditional fractionalism within their nation's borders, which had consequently been drawn up to serve the British rather than the Iraqi people. This was an essential step towards establishing stability beneath the Ba'ath regime. The Smithsonian Magazine explains that Iraq's modern political history has been marked by nationalist fervor. Ethnic uprisings, tribal conflicts, palace treacheries, warfare, and deadly oppression. Scholars have offered a catalog of reasons why antiquity's cradle of civilization has been so unstable. Some blame geography, pointing out that Iraq, which covers some 168,000 square miles, has a mere 12 miles of shoreline on the Persian Gulf, making it the most landlocked and culturally isolated nation in the Middle East. Others tie Iraq's bloody history, as many have described it, to the preponderance of groups vying for power. The rivalry goes deeper than Arab versus British, however, or Sunni versus Shiite versus Kurd. As the Kurdish analyst Siamed Othman said, the history of Iraq has been conditioned, if not determined, by the conflict between city and countryside, meaning the conflict between an emerging educated class around major urban areas and the old semi-literate rural sheikdoms. Saddam's methods involved a carrot and a very large stick, one that probably had spikes on it. The carrot was a plethora of high-quality social service programs funded wholly by revenues from the newly nationalized and state-run oil industry. Believing the same as Frenchman Henry IV, who believed that the key to his people's happiness was a chicken in every pot, Saddam sought to neutralize the next coup by giving the people the things that they needed to improve their quality of life. The seizure of international oil interests began in June of 1972. 
By 1973, the world entered into an energy crisis brought on in large part by constricted supply designed to drive up the profits of oil-rich nations, such as Iraq. These were man-made supply disruptions as the Middle East lashed out against the West's support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. This increase in revenues would go on to provide free compulsory education across the country in order to support Saddam's campaign to end illiteracy. In achieving the status of a petrostate, the new Iraq ran the risk that all oil exporting states face. When the price of oil is high, as it was for this moment in history, the state becomes a flush with cash and it becomes easy to provide first-class social services. But when the oil price dips, as it inevitably does, then the backing of these social services runs up the deficit and risks being suddenly taken away from the people. Venezuela's historic rise in the early 2000s and its collapse a decade later provide the most striking example of the dangers of funding your social safety net through unstable petrostate dollars. During the 73 energy crisis, oil revenue increased in Iraq from a measly half a billion dollars to tens of billions of dollars. In addition to education spending, Saddam utilized his position as deputy to massively expand public infrastructure and enlarge the electricity grid across the country bringing light to some of the most rural corners of the country. Industrialization commenced in order to shift large portions of the population off of peasant farms that still dotted the lands of the world's first civilization. His healthcare programs were so successful that the United Nations bestowed awards on him for the work that he was doing. Kadir Hamza recalls this more benevolent version of the man who would later be referred to as the Butcher of Baghdad. Kadir, a scientist, met Saddam several times in the 1970s and had this to say about him. He was approachable. He would actually listen to your personal problems and try to resolve them if he can, and he usually can. People in debt will go see him and he'll pay their debts off. People who need a house will go see him and he'll try to help them with some government housing project or something, put them on a list or something. He was very helpful. He listens. He is patient. In this way, Saddam acted as a tribal chief or tender-hearted uncle. That term of endearment, uncle, was actually one of the nicknames that Saddam's propagandists encouraged. Just another connection hinting at his desire to emulate Stalin, who was commonly referred to as Uncle Joe by American President Franklin Roosevelt. By the time that Saddam Hussein took power officially in 1979, the West looked favorably on the work that he was doing in Iraq. The Guardian puts it in perspective, reminding us that Saddam's Iraq didn't look like a bad bet. Its large population is comparatively well-educated, its women are relatively liberated. To support Saddam in the 1970s was to support the possibility of a progressive Arab state. 
But recall that I mentioned that Saddam used not only the carrot of social services, but a very large stick. This was the paramilitary security forces that Saddam had pondered over while in prison, imagining that they were the missing piece in the puzzle for achieving stable rule. After showcasing his worth at reforming Iraq's social services, Saddam added the military to his governing portfolio, and he ensured that the People's Army worried about his interests first and foremost. The army was folded into the Ba'ath Party to form its paramilitary wing. He utilized promotions in order to put his men in key positions and emboldened the Mukhabarat, Iraq's secret service, to arrest anyone who agitated against the state. One of the secrets to Saddam's success was his willingness to delegate overlapping tasks to different groups. This ensured that they remained in competition with each other, serving as spies against one another in an attempt to curry favor with Saddam. Political appointees, typically family members of Saddam, were placed at the top of each organization to ensure loyalty. A tidbit from his time in prison shows the operation in practice. When one of his friends returned after being taken away mysteriously by guards to be tortured, Saddam asked him what had happened. The man replied with information about a plot that had been uncovered by the guards. To which Saddam jumped up and down exclaiming that that was his. Evidently he had created a false rumor and gifted it to one of his men. He then instructed that man to tell the guards in order to gain their trust and enter into an informant's agreement. In the moment, Saddam could have cared less about the fact that his ruse had gotten a friend tortured. Instead, he was just ecstatic that it had worked. The Makabarat under Saddam became one of the most efficient intelligence agencies in the Middle East. In addition to controlling political opponents, they were in charge of collecting information on enemy countries, monitoring and overseeing the repression of the Kurds and Shiites of Iraq, as well as the infiltration of the Ba'ath Party to ensure loyalty within the ranks. They also served to link Saddam to foreign-based terror groups that shared his goals. Torture, which they referred to in Iraq as special psychology and other abhorrent practices such as kidnapping, were encouraged and pursued enthusiastically. As the power of the secret police grew, so did the boldness of their crimes. Rape and assassination soon became a part of their regular operations playbook. Through these operations, Saddam was laying the groundwork for his dictatorship. Repression of thought would play a key role in guaranteeing the security and survival of his regime. There would be no democratic votes cast, only coercion and violence. Death penalty, torture, extrajudicial killings would become the rule of Saddam's regime. He stepped out of the shadows in 1979 to officially assume the presidency of Iraq. His cousin's mistake had been to initiate treaties with Syria that could lead to a reunification of that Ba'ath party. Although it was consistent with the party's belief in pan-Arabism, such an outcome would sideline Saddam Hussein beneath the rule of the Syrian regime. Having consolidated all of the internal apparatus of the party, he who confronts allowed his cousin to resign under the guise of health complications. 
After deposing of his cousin, Saddam made it immediately clear that he, and he alone, was in charge. The first of many vicious purges of Saddam's totalitarian rule began on July 22, 1979, mere months after he had assumed the presidency. We'll turn to the news source, The Conversation, to detail the events. Around a hundred of the top Ba'ath Party members were assembled in Saddam's conference room. A man who had clearly been tortured was dragged into the room, triggering an impromptu confession of betrayal from one of the senior leaders. Fifty co-conspirators were immediately named, and each was escorted out individually. The political theater took hold as the proceedings continued methodically with Saddam himself orchestrating the proceedings. The half that survived the ritualistic naming of names were then handed guns and ordered to execute those who had been outed as disloyal, men that they had known and worked with for years. The conversation writes about the political implications telling us that the purge shaped Saddam's image as a ruthless dictator who would not tolerate any form of dissent. His Ba'ath ideology of Arab unity, freedom, and socialism, and the struggle against imperialism and Zionism was nothing but a sham political agenda. He soon instilled a climate of fear that perpetrated torture, kidnapping, mass murder, as well as crimes against humanity and war crimes that would go on to be prosecuted under the International Criminal Court. It also established Iraq as an emerging regional power, disrupting the Middle East's political status quo. Soon, Saddam would be known to his people by many names. The Anointed One, Glorious Leader, Chairman of the Revolutionary Council, Field Marshal of the Armies, he wore a general's uniform decorated with medals awarded by himself, even though he had never served in the army. Saddam Hussein, the judicious political calculator, had transformed the cradle of civilization to a one-party dictatorship. His social spending brought ordinary people into his orbit, and his secret police made sure that all those who refused to bend to his will disappeared from it. An elaborate system of torture and a level of personal paranoia which matched his idol Stalin ensured that he was able to root out plots before they were implemented. In 1979, Saddam had ascended to the presidency of Iraq and had achieved the status of the most infamous 20th century Middle Eastern dictator. If his actions had stayed within his own borders, the odds are high that Iraq's self-proclaimed anointed one would still be in power today. But soon, the president of Iraq would become mired in global geopolitical events that would result in nearly 30 years of war, culminating in his trial and death in 2006. The Smithsonian Magazine sums up his rule stating for the record that Hussein after having his rival killed, ruled despotically for nearly a quarter of a century, waging war on Iran with American backing, and killing many thousands of Iraqis, including thousands of Kurds killed by chemical weapons. Hussein dragged his oil-rich, once-ascendant nation into poverty, 
and his pursuit of weapons of mass destruction put him on a collision course with the world's lone superpower. Those events and more will be covered in our next episode regarding the life of the Butcher of Baghdad.